Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. Shalom, shalom. And if this is your first time, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. I am thrilled and excited to be discussing Parshat Devarim with my friend and colleague, Aviva Lauer. Aviva, in addition to being a teacher of Tanakh and Midrash and lots of Jewish things, is also the director of the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators and is trained probably at this point hundreds of teachers out there in the field. In any event, it's wonderful to have you. It's so wonderful to be here, Tzvi. We'll just jump right in. So the Book of Devarim is essentially these three big speeches that Moshe gives the people before they enter the land. Aviva's told me maybe it's four. Maybe I got that wrong. Oh, because maybe Hazinu is a separate one. In any event, we'll deal with that when we get to Parshat Hazinu. It's these speeches, unlike any other book of the Bible. This is the first Parsha of this book. What do you make of these speeches and especially Moshe's opening? opening speech? Well, I've got to say that I think it's such a weird speech. <laughs> it's a weird opening speech in Parshat Dvarim at the beginning of Sefer Dvarim. Yeah, I wonder if I'm the only one who thinks that. Well, we're going to find out when we check the comments, I guess. But let us know, what are you noticing here that is surprising to you or maybe invites you to interpret? Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, the first sentence of the speech he just like jumps right in in this very weird way. You know, he says, hey, everybody, or friends, Israelites and countrymen, you know, none of that kind of introductory thing. He jumps in and says, the Lord our God spoke to us in Chorev saying, long enough, you have stayed at this mountain. And I'm like thinking of myself as somebody who is listening to it. And I feel like, what? Can you give us a little bit more of a you know, a setup, a background, something. And then the other thing that I think is extremely, extremely weird, and I've been thinking about this obsessively for a while now, is he's talking to a particular group of people, meaning B'nai Israel, the Israelites, at the end of 40 years in the desert. But he's talking to them as if there's somebody else. Meaning what? What do you mean by somebody else? He is referring to them over and over as if they are their parents' generation. So what you're pointing out, just so we're all clear, there were two generations in the desert, right? There were those that came out of Egypt, and because of the failure of the mission of the spies, we know that they die out. And so he's really speaking to the children of those people. What you're saying is he's speaking to them not as the children. He speaks to them as you. Yeah, it's like he's directing his words to somebody who's not there. And he's saying it, though, as if the people who are there are the people who aren't there anymore. That's very confusing. And I think of myself as if I were there and listening to Moshe. 
And as he talks, as he starts and as he continues, I think of myself saying, wait, what? Are you like even seeing me? Do you know who I am? Which I guess you would argue as an educator, that's not the usual strategy pedagogically, right? They may not even know why they're being addressed or how they're being addressed. So how do you make sense of that? What's Moshe's goal here in doing that? Before we come up with his goal, can we just say that in reading it over and over and over a couple of times that I read it, I thought, and don't quote me here, people who are listening, because this isn't the end of the podcast. This is just the beginning of the podcast that maybe he's suffering some sort of dementia, that maybe he's really not seeing who he's talking to. So Moshe's confused. It's kind of interesting when you think about the very end of this book. You know, we're starting Sefer Dvarim, but at the very, very end, what does it say about him? You know, that his vigor never abated. But like, are we talking about physical vigor or are we talking about cognitive? This could be seen as if somebody is talking to somebody who is not there, just really remembering the past and thinking and then talking as if they're in the past. So theory number one is a cognitively impaired Moshe Rabbeinu. Yeah. See, folks, this is the one place to go for radical takes on the partial. You will not hear that in shul this week if you go. Okay, so theory number one is Moshe is impaired. What else? Theory number two is not that he's impaired cognitively, but I think we often say that Moshe is not allowed to go into the promised land is not because he's punished, right? It wasn't like he was being no, no, no by God, but rather he had just had ceased to grow in the same way that B'nai Israel was continuing to grow. And he was no longer a fitting leader for them because he was just stuck in the desert and they were ready to no longer be stuck so in the So he desert. speaks to the generation that he feels he can communicate best with, which is the earlier generation and not the people who are in front of him. And he's still there somehow. That's the only way he feels he can be effective. Right. So I wouldn't call that the same kind of cognitive impairment, but it's almost like an emotional slash professional impairment. What about the idea, I'm just going to throw this out, and maybe you're going there anyways, this idea that he experienced a trauma at the failure of that generation, and he just wants to address the trauma of their failure. I actually wasn't going to go there, so you tell me a little bit more about that. Meaning the sense that he still wants to correct that horrible mistake, so to speak, that that generation didn't go in, and maybe he's been dreaming or thinking about the painful failure of not being able to deliver that generation into the land and instead this waiting of 38 years. And maybe he's still trying to address and fix that somehow. And that's why he's still talking to them. So I would say that that's connected to that second theory of emotional slash professional impairment, because if he was able to get past that trauma, then he would recognize that talking to them as if they're somebody else, as if they need to right the wrongs of their parents, isn't really going to work. I mean, does that actually work? It's his need, not theirs. Well, then in that case, I've got one more theory to throw you before you give us the big reveal, which I'm excited to hear. Maybe the two generations are more similar than we would like to acknowledge, that maybe Moshe is looking at them and saying, I know you guys think you're so different from your parents, but I've got news for you. The struggles that they had are going to be your struggles as well. And don't think that you are immune to the same issues that confronted them. I think there's definitely an element of that in the way that I've come to read it. It took me a few, 
but eventually I got us on track. So now, Aviva, let us know what you're doing with this puzzling generational confusion that's happening in our text. So on first take and second and many, many, many takes thereafter, if you are reading this and you say, this is just so strange, he keeps saying words like, Elenu, Diber Elenu, God spoke to us in Chorev, which was 40 years before, or Ve'omar Alechem Be'etahi, and I said to you at that time, but they were not there at that time. You know, you just read it through. There are so many examples of that in the first chapter and a half of the book of Devarim. And you think, what is wrong with this guy? You know, it's like one of those conversations that you might have. I don't know. Does this ever happen to you that you're in a class and, you know, you're talking in one direction and the students seem to be in a totally different place or in like a meeting or on a date? I don't know. In a situation where the two sides are just not meeting each other. And it's like, you guys who are listening, you can't see my hands, but I'm doing this sort of hand motion of... She is. I can confirm these two hands that are crossing but not meeting each other. Right. They're just not meeting. And that's what it really feels like. But I think we have to look at this not as a speech, Svi. Despite the fact that we know this is a series of speeches, I think we have to think about it not as a speech that Moshe is giving to the people he is talking to, but rather we have to look at this as a piece of literature that Moshe or whoever is writing this down is thinking about it being read by many, many generations. And not only is the audience reading it in different generations, but they're reading the lines and they're reading between the lines. See it as a text, not as an oral speech, but how Moshe is thinking about the reader hundreds, perhaps even thousands of years into the future. Right. So where does that take you? If you're doing it in that reading a text, you'll notice in between those very weird lines of Moshe saying, I spoke to you, even though he wasn't really speaking to the people he was talking to, you'll notice these interjections that he makes. Like in verse 39 of the first chapter, Moshe is telling the story of the spies and how the Israelites came up with this idea that they should send spies into the land. And he liked the idea. And then, of course, the spies came back and they, in this case, actually don't even say anything bad about the land. But the Israelites feel very unconfident and very nervous and they decide that they don't want to go into the land When Moshe's response to them is, God was so angry at you and God was so angry at me. And because of that, I'm going to have to hire a successor. That's Joshua. But what he says in verse 39 is this. And your little ones of whom you said they will become prey and your sons who know not this day good or evil, they it is who will come there and to them I will give it and they will take hold of it. As for you, dot, dot, dot. So he makes these statements where he is referring to the next generation and saying they're going to be successful. They're the ones who are going to grow. They're the ones who are going to change. And they're the ones who are going to succeed in going into the promised land. It's like he's giving this literary hint towards the people who are actually listening to him at that time. And so I think we, as the reader, 2,000 years later, are meant to see Moshe doing two things at the same time intentionally. I think he is intentionally creating 
cognitive dissonance for the people at the time and for us. I think he is saying, on the one hand, you did really bad things. You kept messing up and you can't keep doing this. You just can't do it. And at the same time, he's saying, you are the people who are going to succeed. You are the next generation. You are the youth. And it's all going to be good for you. So by directing the anger and the accusation of failure to them as the earlier generation that lets them, on the one hand, really warn them, you guys can fail. Don't think that you're perfect and you figured it all out and your parents didn't. I look at you and I see a lot of what I saw in your parents. So just beware of that fact. But at the same time, you're not them. And therefore, you can feel more optimistic and confident. It's like he's delivering that dire warning, but also maybe a little support and belief all at the same time. Yeah, I don't think it's just a little support and belief. I think he is delivering both of those messages equally, but in different ways. I think that one of them is very explicit, and that's the one where he's giving the dire warning. And I think one of them is more implicit, but very strong. There's a strong undercurrent because it actually occurs not just that one time, but like five times or four times throughout this chapter and a half where he refers to the next generation or the promise that our forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, are going to have progeny who are as multitudinous as the stars in the sky and the sand, or something to that effect, and like the sand in the sea. And it's this amazing promise and amazing sort of gift of, I know that this is what it's going to be. You guys are okay. Not only are you okay, you are going to be a real success in this land. Either the reader or the listener at the time, how do you absorb a dual message of you are incredibly flawed, you are incredibly likely to fail, because I've known you for this long and you guys fail all the time. I'm now going to even list out for you all the different failures that you encounter. At the same time, I see you as the future blessing that we're all waiting for and that there is a tremendous possibility of wonder and success. So I really want to answer that question, and I will. But before that, I feel like I really want to tell you the way that I got to this idea. Absolutely. So Actually, it was in looking at the commentary of Shmuel David Luzzato, the 19th century Italian biblical commentator, and not seeing in what he said, in what he wrote about the first verses of Devarim, what I have said to you, but rather his pointing to literary techniques that are in the text. So what he does is this. If you look at the very beginning of this chapter, before the first line of Moshe's speech, we get this like long exposition, five psukim, that reads like this. These are the words that Moses spoke to all the Israelites across the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Aravah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel and Lavan and Chatzerot and Dizahav, 11 days from Chorev by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. And it actually goes on three more psukim. That was just two psukim that I read you. But a lot of geography. A lot of geography. And what Shadal says is that this phrase, 11 days from Chorev by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, is not part of the geographical setup. It's not part of the exposition. Actually, that phrase is part of Moshe's monologue to the Israelites over and over and over throughout the 40 years. That he is saying to them, guys, 
it's really only 11 days from where we are to get to the land of Israel. It's really, really close. We could get there. We could have gotten there. Repeating that message over and over. Whether that message is a new, 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 you know, like a... You guys blew it. Right? Or a, guess what? It's so close. We can get there. It's really, really close in this inspirational, aspirational kind of way. Shadal is saying that what we generally take to be a piece of the exposition is actually a piece of dialogue or monologue. So I thought, huh, okay, if that's the case, then let's do something else. Let's turn something that we think is part of the monologue into a type of underlying literary technique, right? So where we're understanding Moshe to be saying all of these little messages about the children, the next generation, maybe that's Moshe putting it in, in written form for us who are reading this and seeing he's talking to the people and he's giving this kind of tochacha, this kind of you blew it or your parents blew it message. But underneath, we're supposed to understand just as strongly by reading these little interjections that Moshe is also saying, hey, guys, be aspirational. You are going to do it. I believe in you. So there's these two messages going on at the same time. And it's possible, based on what you're saying, he may have inserted the optimistic stuff afterwards. Like he may have looked at his own speech and said, wow, I was so hard on them. I'm worried when in the future, 3,500 years later, when Aviva Lauer is reading this text, she's going to say, this is such a downer. This just makes me feel like a total failure. I better include a balancing just to give the text that balance and the message a balance that it's not all negative. Right. Also to say, I am not cognitively deficient and I'm reflecting on what I've said and what message I really want to be giving. And to say that this message is not just for the people at the time, you know, so many years ago. It's for all the people. I want them to see that there are two messages and that there are always two messages. What's really interesting, what resonates for me is that often we want to give two competing messages. We meet somewhere in the middle and go with something parf, right? Something we think is quote unquote balanced. But you're suggesting that sometimes that Moshe may have deliberately gone in the other direction. I'm going to give two extreme messages and let you sort out the tension and conflict between them. I'm going to give you one message of very harsh rebuke. Understand your failure. I want to remind you, and it's your failure. Don't think you can point it off on your parents. It's your failure. And all the same character traits that brought them to that failure can bring you too. Don't think it's going to be easy. Don't think you're any better. At the same time, I want to give them this message of support and confidence and optimism and belief. And so I'm not going to reach some parve thing in the middle of a mild rebuke and a mildly optimistic vision. I'm going to include these two competing perspectives all at the same time. Yeah. The second message is, you're the best. You are my favorite. You are going to go far and be a star. I mean, literally be a star. It's really an extreme positive message, the second message. So I must ask you, where does this take you for yourself, this idea of contrasting messages, contrasting perspective, living in this idea of two radically different takes all at the same time? I think that the message of Moshe here, the very non-cognitively impaired Moshe, right? Moshe is brilliant. 
And we call him Moshe Rabbeinu. He's a consummate educator, I think. And this is an excellent example of it if we are going to go with this read. What we learned from him is you have to be able to hold two things at once and you don't always have to synthesize them. You aren't going to always be able to and you don't always have to come to that par of thing in the middle. I'm not talking about not compromising. That's not what I mean. But I mean in terms of truths and characteristics that people have and important ideas that they have to hold at the same time. You have to hold both of them in their extreme strength. Both of them are going to be strong. Both of them are going to be powerful. Hold both of those. And that's okay. Can you think of an example where you feel this is happening for you, where you are able to hold on to these two competing truths all at the same time and what that gives you? I'm not sure if this is what you're referring to, but what's coming to mind for me is if we started out by saying that it seems like Moshe is putting the Israelites in a twilight zone. Do you remember that? You're probably too young to know no, the No, I'm older than you, so how could I be too young to remember? But yes, I remember the twilight Okay, zone. so this idea that there's like a liminal space, like sometimes you're just in this weird in-between. And I think what I experience so often in Judaism is a kind of elegant hopping from that liminal space to one side and then back to the liminal space and then hopping to the other side. For example, Shabbat. We are meant to be totally resting on Shabbat. And from our, you know, liminal space of right before Shabbat, we hop into Shabbat and we go all in. And then after 25 hours, we jump over to the other side and we are all in in our work week on everything we need to do creatively. And I love that about Judaism. From that liminal space, I'm calling that the twilight zone, but in a good way, from that space of reflection and being able to see both sides, I know in Judaism and in my life, because Judaism is what runs my life pretty much, I'm going to go in a sense to one extreme because I can see it and I know that I'm going to be able to come back and then go to the other extreme or one side and then the other side. It's an elegant hopping, not a crazy jumping to extreme and then falling down. Well, I guess the important difference is whenever you're in one, you never lose sight of the other. It's not like the other one disappears. It's there. I'll put it more positively. All the creative, wonderful things you're going to do in the course of your work are all present there as you're also enjoying this moment of a perfect world that doesn't need any more work and is already complete. Both of those possibilities are in your head all at the same time. I think it's because we trust the process. It works. And, you know, one side sort of recedes, even though it's always still there. We allow it to recede and we believe it'll come back because we trust the process of holding these two things at the same time. We trust the process of Judaism. We trust Moshe's message to us. Like, be nuanced and trust the process of holding both. It's very powerful what you're saying and where it took me is to a lot of tensions between heart and mind. You know, the example of God, where I have moments where I cannot make rational sense of any kind of relationship with a transcendent being who's involved in my life, who cares about my life, who's involved in our lives. It feels so completely foreign, I can't get a mental handle on it, but my heart wants it. I have a tremendous feeling of desire for that moment of connection. So even though my mind can't comprehend it or make sense of it, my heart wants it. 
I don't want to be a mindless person, even though some people call me that. I don't want to be without intellect, and I don't want to be without feeling, but intellect and feeling will often yield really different needs and different conclusions and different directions, and to hold on to both of them as opposed to ignoring both of them or trying to make some kind of compromise between them. But really holding on to both is really the goal. That's the aspiration, to be in both places at the same time. That's exactly it. Be in both places at the same time and be in both time periods at the same time. I think that's the message of Moshe when he says, Ba'etahi, talking about you. At that time, I'm talking to you. In that other place where you're not, I'm talking to you. He's really saying exactly what you just said. You can be in two places at once. You can be in two times at once. You know, that's really such a wonderful idea. I was just hearing somebody talking about one of the essential natures of ultra-Orthodox society is to want to be in the past, to sort of say, no, modernity did not happen. I'm not from this time. I'm from a previous time, which I understand, right? This impulse of wanting to be in tradition, be in an unchanging, fixed, safer time. It's easier. And on the other hand, there are some people who want to cut off from the past completely. They want to be only in this time. They want to be completely modern, whatever that might mean. And I feel like what you described when we study Torah, when we live out our Judaism, is that we really have to be both all the time, that somehow we have to be Jews of the present, but no less Jews of the past. With all the contradictions that brings, with all the tension that that brings, we are both the Jews who stood there on the side of the Jordan hearing Moshe, and we are also the Jews 3,500 years later. We're not them. We are something new and doing something new, and to be in that both places, that sounds very, very hard. I actually want to say that we don't have to be that. We get to be that. Uh-oh, you're saying that my sense of horrible anxiety over this idea is actually an opportunity to live a more enriched life. Well, Tzvi, it's a gift. That's why they call it the present. No, that did not work that at all. That was really good. I like that. <laughs> oh, my God. That's fantastic. That's why they call it the present. That is very inspiring, but also very challenging. And I imagine as an educator for you to try to teach that to people who might naturally gravitate to, they want one side. They don't want to live in both places. I said just a moment ago when you were describing those people who want to live only in the past, I interjected, it's easier. I think that we are not meant to live easy lives. And for me, hard work is a really high Jewish value. And I don't think that we should be afraid of hard work. I mean, Moshe says that too, right? Al-Tifchad, or I can't remember the exact words from this Parsha. But yeah, we are not supposed to be afraid of hard work. Well, folks, I'm going to have to leave it at that because what a powerful message to remind us that this is not going to be easy. But I did hear you imply it can be meaningful and rewarding and enriching and even joyous. Oh, it goes without saying that it has to be all of those things. But it's not going to be easy. And Moshe is warning us of that fact and educating us towards that fact from the very beginning. And really rooting for us on the side. It's going to happen. You're going to do it. Go do it. All right. You heard it. It's going to happen. Go do it. I feel more optimistic, and I never feel optimistic when I read the book of Dvarim. So this is a real help to me. Aviva, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your reading skills and all the wonderful things you brought today. Well, thanks for indulging me. This was not indulging. We were learning from you. 
I want to thank Aviva again, and I want to thank all of you for listening. I know you found it as rewarding as I did, and please join us again for our next Parsha podcast, which will feature Leon Morris, the head of Pardes and Parshat Ve'et Hanan. So on that note, I wish you all a Shabbat Shalom, and please give us more listens. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.